This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly starting right now, bringing emergency managers from around the world together to learn, share, and collaborate. I think the best thing that we could do from a response standpoint was utilizing our incident management team and finding creative ways to make sure that we're going to get the biggest return on our investment with our response. Hi, and welcome to the EM Weekly Show, your emergency management podcast. And this is your host, Todd DeVoe speaking. This week, we're talking to Randy Collins from the All Hazards Incident Management Team Association. We're discussing the current situation with getting enough relief staff into the emergency operations centers over this COVID crisis. One of the solutions is maybe using incident management teams in the EOC. Yes, I know you ICS purists out there are cringing right now. It's just a thought that we may be able to look outside the box and use personnel that might not be traditionally in those positions to help out with this current crisis. Anyway, I'm interested to hear what you have to say, but let's get into the interview. Randy, welcome back to the Ian Weekly Show. Thanks for having me. So last time we spoke, you're kind of going into the history of the All Hazards Incident Management Team Association, and and then uh, we went to a conference and all that kind of stuff. So uh, it's it's been awesome. So how have you been? Yeah, we were having a great year, and we're looking forward to moving into our tenth year uh, with the association. And then, of course, we ran straight smack dab into COVID and all the challenges that that uh, brings to any organization. That's a, it's a, it's a hard hit right there. COVID is really playing some, uh, some havoc into the uh, fundamental way that we look at emergency management. Absolutely, it, uh, it, it has definitely tasked uh, all of our agencies globally. And uh, I think I made a, a comment in one Facebook post uh, with an emergency management group that. This is the first time, uh, this was early on in, in the COVID response, and it was the first time that I ever recall in my 20-year uh, career that pretty much simultaneously everyone was working on the same incident at the same time. And so it provided some level of unity of effort, but at the same time, uh, a lot of different challenges across the board for every uh, different organization. That's true. I, I never thought about it in, in that perspective with everybody working the same incident across the, realistically across the globe. It's weird that this is the first time in the history of the United States that every state and territory and district has been declared a federal disaster. Yeah, certainly something that is going to overtask uh, any any federal organization and, and FEMA is no uh, no different and and so they're going to have some unique challenges there and figure out because they can't establish a joint field office in, in all the particular locations that they normally would 
after a you know a designated disaster and and so forth. And so that's that's going to create its own unique challenges. And at the same time, even with down to the local jurisdiction, all disasters are local, and uh, we find ourselves not being able to use mutual aid and and other things that we would use you know to solve a problem because all of our neighboring jurisdictions and any jurisdiction across the country is utilizing their resources there at home. And, and so they're not free to, to deploy for mutual aid. Yeah. I was talking to one of my friends in the contracting business and he was stating that they were somewhere around 150 persons short of being able to fulfill all of their requests to work in emergency operations centers across the country. And that's just one contracting company with, with one set of contracts. So I'm sure that problem has gone across all the others. It's one of the larger ones, too, for that matter. So I'm sure that problem is just across the board. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, if you think about uh, just the supply chain in general, when all of a sudden uh, every public safety agency and private sector entity and nonprofit uh, sector entity and, and whatever other entity starts looking for hand sanitizer and Clorox wipes and toilet paper all at the same time, it certainly creates a, a, a challenge in terms of finding finding vendors. It's interesting that that's one of the issues that we have to really kind of cover because this is not a, a an issue that snuck up on us. It's not like a hurricane or or a uh, an earthquake or a you know a tornado that comes ripping through. the 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 idea of a pandemic uh, was something that we've practiced for that we planned for. Uh, we all had very uh, similar similar um, experiences with the uh, SARS one and with the H one N one and the H five N one. You know, we all knew that the pandemic was a possibility. And it feels like from the public side, you know, from the news articles and stuff that I'm reading, that they feel like we got caught with our with our shorts down. But I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think what it is is that we just move so fast that there's just not enough people trained to be able to do some of the, on the emergency management side, some of the roles. What do you think of that or, or am I off on that? Yeah, well, I think um, this pandemic has definitely challenged our, our, our staffing, our levels of staffing in terms of emergency management, in terms of emergency response. And I think we, we knew always from the get-go that a pandemic is going to thin out your, your staffing at every government level because of absenteeism, because schools closed and people have to stay home and take care of their kids, because of um, people being sick and any other reasons, you know, can you know that we see with these different uh, health orders or self-isolation orders and, and so forth. So uh, we knew that we would always be playing with a a smaller bench, if you will, um, on the government side, government response side, and and so I think uh, that provides the opportunity, though, in terms of uh, the emergency response side of of uh, capturing some of those uh, non-traditional. Uh, government employees and and using them in ways that uh, that wasn't intended uh, beforehand. We're starting to see the effects of the economic effects of this event. Uh, the malls, the the grocery store, oh, the grocery store so much, but the malls, the the non essential uh, shops, if you will, uh, being closed, uh, people being laid off. I read an article uh, in the Wall Street Journal that was stating that there are 
10 states that are close to uh, maxing out their um, unemployment, and they're going to be looking at the federal government soon uh, for relief on that level. And also the fact that the cities are no longer uh, taking income in from the the tax base of the of the say the shopping and whatnot that happens in their in their towns. How do you see this impacting local government? Are we looking at the potential of employment loss at that level, or do you think that this is going to be something that could bounce back once we're able to uh, open up again and we have a handle on on the COVID health public health crisis? Yeah, I, well, it's interesting that you asked that. I was just in a meeting with our economic development coordinator talking about recovery and, and doing some brainstorming about what our strategy is, short-term and long-term recovery moving forward in terms of our businesses. And, uh, you know, I, I, unfortunately, I think that while, you know, these extreme uh, isolation orders, and I don't mean extreme as as they were an overreaction, but I mean that, you know, something that is really uh, – uh, is really hurting our, our economy uh, because because these are the actions that we had to take. But uh, so these these actions that we had to take, uh, once they go away, we're still going to have a whole different uh, new normal that will last. Uh, you know, in, in some of the articles I'm reading, um, up up through 2022 in terms of social distancing and so forth. So I think that what uh, recovery looks like is is an, an adaptation of, of our businesses uh, so that they are uh, creating an area that is safe to spend money, safe to for patrons and consumers to come back to their business, but uh, doing so in a way that um, you know you're you're scheduling your time to go grocery shop shopping, or you're scheduling time to have your group of people come to that pizza parlor or that uh, restaurant bar, and um, and then making sure that there are uh, wide open or, or that they're social distancing between tables and, and that sort of thing. So scheduling and, and reservations, I think, are going to become big in, in terms of what a recovery looks like, as well as uh, what a business can do to um, to try to minimize the threat of, of, um, of transmission uh, through cleaning and, and disinfection and, and other uh, mitigation efforts as well. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of uh, new normal, if you will. The new normal is going to be, uh, you know, the idea of maybe not going to eat out, right? If you go to, say, you know, the the local chain restaurants, such as, like, say, uh, a Chili's or a Red Robin or whatever, it's going to be more the idea of a quick takeout, you know, kind of like New York City style uh, of, of food, you know, and I think that people, maybe the reduction of size, but that's really going to have a really impact on unemployment opportunities and things like this for people. So it's going to be definitely a hard time to, to recover from. And, and I know that we're looking at recovery even in the midst of this, because like everything else, recovery starts the minute that the disaster begins. So I I think it's a good conversation that we should really be exploring more. And I think emergency managers working with their economic development people, working with their uh, public works people, working with, you know, their parks department to see how we can mitigate the issues of of spreading disease even more. So it's going to be a definitely interesting time and and a lot of deep thoughted conversations that are going to come out of this. 
Yeah, and, and and I think you're right to your earlier point about the impact, though, on on local government and and, and state government and national government for that matter. But uh, in terms of, of of the tax base and, and and that sort of thing, I know here in my community in El Segundo, we rely heavily on um, we rely heavily on on a hotel base that does a tenant occupancy tax that also relies on on a travel base because we're right next to LAX airport and when people aren't flying uh, and and people aren't traveling for business in in our large business industry here in the city that uh, those hotels aren't full and so the city is not getting the revenue that it would normally get and so now the city has to figure out what you're going to do with that revenue shortfall that was certainly not uh, predicted or expected you know you know three months ago and so that's that's a huge challenge that uh, cities are going to have to figure out. Number one, how do they survive? Continue to provide these services that they um, need to provide, and how do they jumpstart that economy so they can get that revenue streams um, kicked back up again? So I know that you work at a local city as well as being the uh, CEO and president of the All Hazards Incident Management Team Association. What's this impact been like for your jurisdiction? Well, it's it's been significant. It's um, you know we have uh, El Segundo is already an interesting uh, little town of Mayberry in Los Angeles, where we have uh, a lot of small businesses and restaurants that uh, cater to the, the small population, and then we have a lot of big Fortune 500 companies all focused on uh, a multitude of things, but certainly a large aerospace industry that is. Uh, su- uh, supporting or, or doing business with the local Air Force Base here, and um, and then we have uh, Mattel that is uh, you know uh, the home of Barbie and, and Hot Wheels and, and so forth. So uh, so we have large businesses that are affected. We have small businesses that are affected, and um, and certainly we've had that impact on our on our revenue stream in in the city. So. Um, you know, I think the best thing that we could do from a res- response standpoint was utilizing our incident management team and finding creative ways to make sure that we're going to get the biggest return on our investment with our response um, through public assistance and uh, hopefully the California Disaster Assistance Act as well, and basically make our response a zero-sum uh, response as well as hopefully, you know, some of those employees that other cities may be sent home and, and just paid to, to, to be at home or whatever, hopefully we've engaged as many of our employees as possible in ways that interface with our incident management team that is justifiable under the response that, you know, so for our plan, so for instance, our, our planning session chief is actually a parks and rec person and, and he's doing an amazing job at it. And that's, um, you know, and, and under the PA rules, that's going to be uh, straight time and is overtime. So we're not, hopefully we're not going to take as much of a hit that maybe some other cities that didn't uh, really respond in the, in the manner that we responded. But nonetheless, I think that response cost is, is, is just a sliver of the overall damage to the loss of revenue. If you're a city and you're looking to get people to come work in the emergency operations center because i mean what we're working on somewhere close to 40 days of straight deployment straight eoc operations and i mean there has to be employees that are that are getting burnt out at this point and there's no relief in sight is there a possibility of using say the incident management team inside of an eoc 
Well, yeah, I definitely think that you'll see, um, and, and this is a, a point of contention, I think, with some ICS purists that say IMTs belong in an incident command post and not in an EOC. And then there's other people that say, hey, an incident management team is uh, has the capabilities of, of managing an, an EOC. And so there's all kinds of debate about that. And, um, you know, I think that... Um, uh, certainly, there's there's uh, there's a bit of um, logic to each each of those perspectives, um, and uh, in, in in our case, we really maintain since we are such a small jurisdiction, we maintain a small uh, multi-agency coordination group, and our IMT is really the nuts and bolts of our uh, of our emergency response here. And so we really depend on that uh, that incident management team and and what it can do for the city and um, and again we have such a small jurisdiction that that incident management team can kind of oversee that. But one of the things that we're doing to uh, try to break up that monotony, as you talked about, because I think uh, when we look at the IIT here, yeah, I think we're we're on, we're on operational period 30. <laughs> so we've been doing it a long time and. Uh, so one of the things that we're doing is we're talking to other incident management teams in our area and and hopefully going to start an exchange program. And that does a couple of things for us. Number one is in most taskbook qualification systems, uh, you need to have at least two incidents. So some of our people that haven't been on two incidents can maybe go to another uh, another IMT and kind of learn more about what uh, another IMT is doing and how they're using their IMT and bring back some best practices or great ideas back toward our team, but also it breaks up the monotony for each of the individuals uh, and, and gives it a little bit of flavor so we're not in Groundhog Day, day in and day out. Yeah, I think that's one of the issues is the Groundhog's Day um, effect. And let's take a quick break, and when we get back, I want to talk a little bit about how we can utilize IMTs from across the, the globe here to help out with each other, um, whether it's virtual or in person. Seconds count during an emergency. That's why at Titan HST, we're always inventing new technology to help people stay safe and help people who can provide help get connected with people who need help. At Titan HST, we've deployed mesh networking, allowing emergency communication, even when networks are down, augmented reality and real-time translation. We believe in the power of people to help each other stay safe and thrive. Well, welcome back from that quick break and thank you so much for listening to our sponsors and without them, well, we could not bring you the quality content we do. So please reach out to them and let them know that you heard about them here on the EM Weekly Show. So Randy, before we went on that quick break, I alluded to the fact of, of using IMTs in, in unique ways and how we can learn from each other. How can we learn from each other's, because like obviously the stuff that's going on in Los Angeles County is completely, completely different from what's going on, say, in New York City. Uh, our, our, the number of, of victims of COVID are, are smaller. Uh, the way we're handling things are smaller. Um, you know, and then, but New York City is getting, getting hammered. How can we learn from New York City, and how can New York City learn from, say, us here on the West Coast? Well, uh, first, I would just uh, encourage people to uh, go to uh, the All Hazards Incident Management Team website. Um, 
www.himta.org. Um, and um, there, right from the get-go, we initiated, we realized that, hey, this is going to be a global incident that, that goes on for, for a long, long time. And so we initiated an opportunity for all the incident management teams that get activated to share uh, their, uh, their operations with us and their resources with us. So they've uh, emailed us um, incident action plans and um, flyers that PIOs are using and uh, different resource guides or how they're managing and uh, a responder exposure. I mean, you name it, we've got a lot of things that were submitted to us and we're putting them onto, uh, onto our website so anybody um, can, can go there and, and look at what incident management teams are doing, what missions they're getting assigned, um, what are some of those best practices, and, and I would encourage people to drill down into those incident action plans and, and look at, you know, some of the messages from the safety officers and, and the 204 forms or on the 208 form uh, and the general uh, message form, form from the safety officers. Uh, what, you know, what different divisions are doing what or groups are doing what um, in terms of mitigation in their communities, depending on, you know, what the mission of the incident management team was. So it's a great resource to really see the, the uh, versatility of incident management teams and how they're being employ employed across the country. Are there healthcare specific incident management teams that are out there? Um, there are, um, you know, certainly uh, there are uh, incident management teams that are um, that operate um, under the hospital incident command system uh, and and manage uh, hospital operations and and so forth. Uh, but there's also, again, just unique ways in in the way that other incident management teams are working. And for instance, I know that uh, the Northwest Indiana Incident Management Team got activated very early in, in the response to manage a multi-agency coordination uh, center uh, for five counties and all the hospitals within that county. And their their mission um, uh, was, was really to coordinate all the critical resources and all the different issues that are going on in that uh, five county area, uh, which, you know, is right up there near Chicago. And so, they're, you know, I know that they've, they've really been challenged and, um, that, but that team has been critical in, in really identifying where the, the critical resources need to go and getting those resources uh, so that uh, lives are saved. So as far as like the first responders go, the, the, the firefighters and the police officers and whatnot, and in the West Coast here, it's almost been a, a reduction in the call volume due to the fact that people aren't out doing crazy things as far as trauma goes and and it seems like people don't want to go to the hospital if they just have a regular type of cold, for lack of a better term, because they're afraid of, of contracting COVID. But on, in New York, obviously, it's, it's, it seems to be the opposite. It seems like the first responders are, are getting hit hard. What can we do as managing this event to really bring in those other partners into, into the fold, into the, into the mix, into the training, to what we're doing to, to manage this event? Well, you know, first of all, I think, um, showing the value of, uh, of, of team effort, um, really brings into uh, play how, how people assimilate into that, that concept. I was, 
was actually thinking this morning about this economic recovery meeting that I told you about earlier. And, and uh, you know, our economic, court, uh, economic uh, development coordinator, she does amazing work uh, on, on, on any given day outside of COVID and, and that sort of thing. And I think one of the selling points about involving her in the emergency response operations and involving her in the emergency recovery operations is that she realizes that uh, there is a whole team behind her that can provide resources, that can provide logistics, that can provide some heavy lift uh, labor, whatever she needs in terms of uh, getting the word out through a public information officer and our, you know, activated joint information center. Um, I mean, you name it, she's got a whole team that is uh, providing her resources and and anybody involved in such a disaster who would normally be a a, a one person shop or even if it's a multiple multiple person shop but doesn't have a lot of those supporting mechanisms will find that an incident management team supports them uh, in their mission and uh, can make them that much more effective during a time of emergency. And, and ultimately, that's what we're hoping for out of emergency management, I think, is, is not only good government, but um, when we activate those emergency operations centers and activate our incident management teams, we're looking for good government that works with a sense of urgency that, get thing, get that gets things done in a hurry. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I want to give you a few minutes to talk about some of the new stuff that's happening um, at the association. And I know that you have announced today um, a new a new board member. Can you tell us a little bit what's going on in the association and some of the great news that's happening? Sure. So uh, we've definitely tried to keep uh, things moving forward uh, through this um unprecedented time, even though that we can't travel and uh, and that sort of thing. Most of us are all extremely busy uh, doing response in our own community. We've still been able to get the board together for our board meetings and uh, continue um, association business. And one of the one of the first things that may be uh, new to some people is the um, is the uh, national coordination group, which is a group that um, uh, uh, FEMA really spearheaded and uh, put together this uh, this group that is uh, made up of not only um, FEMA but uh, and out of the uh, National Integration Center, but also HINTA has a, a seat at the table as well as uh, NEMA, the National Emergency Management Association, IAM, the uh, International Association of Emergency Managers, Big City Emergency Managers, and NWCG. And um, so it's, uh, this coordination group is really intended to uh, really provide feedback on things that uh, were being considered by the NIC and, and hopefully intended to um, create some level of continuity in terms of, uh, in terms of government, in terms of doc, uh, the development of doctrine. And not only do you have this committee, but that committee will be looking at creating uh, various subgroups uh, or subcommittees. Um, you know, one, for instance, is a technology subcommittee that's looking at uh, technological things um, as it relates to NIMS and, and, and our doctrine in terms of response. So um, that's, uh, that's one thing that we're really excited about being a part of. And then on top of that, um, you know, as you mentioned, we have our new uh, uh, board of director, Lori Postma. So we're excited that 
Uh, last month, the, the board appointed her to a vacancy that was left by um, a member that uh, unfortunately had to leave uh, the position early. And uh, so Lori has uh, raised her hand and uh, stepped up, and Lori's a great addition to the team. Uh, I've known Lori for quite a long time, as I used to uh, be from Indiana, and, and Lori represents uh, the Region 5 area. And uh, Lori brings um, a, a variety of uh, backgrounds. She's not only a, a, a registered nurse out of an ER department and also does emergency management for her hospital, but she also uh, is heavily involved with her local fire department. Uh, she's also heavily involved with the incident management program in Indiana, where she sits on the uh, qualifications committee. Um, and she, uh, and that's just a snippet of many things that she does in terms of uh, her resume and, and her career. So uh, we're really glad to have her. And quite frankly, she's she's a go-getter and gets things done. And that's just the kind of people that we need on the board, um, as we can only meet so often. And uh, so uh, people that uh, cut through, cut to the chase, and and get down to business uh, are, are great board board members for us. So we're excited that she's coming on board. Um, I think just like every other association uh, that puts on a conference, we're certainly looking at COVID and wondering how that's going to impact us. We're scheduled to have our 10th uh, anniversary conference in Denver coming in December. And so we're, uh, we're certainly looking at uh, that and wondering uh, how COVID is going to impact us um, and whether we need to look at postponing or, or things like that. But I think those will be decisions that uh, come later down the road here. Um, we also have uh, a great opportunity um, with um, with our with our partnerships across the board. You know, in terms of well, actually, COVID brought up a, a big one. You know, we've always maintained a very strong relationship with the U.S. Fire Administration, who really was the kickstarter of the All Hazard Incident Management Team program across the country, and. COVID, uh, at the beginning of COVID, um, the U.S. Fire Administration uh, suddenly received a lot of requests about how do I develop an incident management team in my community? And so now they're taking a really hard look at uh, creating a team manual and have asked uh, the All Hazard Incident Management Teams Association to, uh, to be a part of creating a, a manual that helps people develop this, their incident management teams locally. So we're really excited about that program. Uh, and then another uh, another thing that they were looking at, uh, and this was long before COVID, but was a three-tier uh, evaluation model, if you will, that looks at an incident management team such as mine in El Segundo that is not designed to deploy anywhere. It's only designed to support uh, the local community. And then, uh, and what should um, some standards be or criteria be for our level of capability to just take care of our own jurisdiction? And then the other tiers would be more of a regional response capability, those teams that can uh, respond in a, an entire metro area or an entire region or district that is broken down, you know, within a state. And then those that are really focused on not only helping at home or the region, but also thinking more about being able to deploy through EMAC to support other states during a hurricane or whatever major uh, emergency come, comes their way. So. I think um, uh, being involved in, in, in all those types of programs is, is a real credit to an association only 10 years in the running. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's a great, it's a great organization. And being that it's a great organization, 
if somebody wanted to get involved with you, how could they? Well, that's real simple. Uh, we want to uh, we want uh, members to join. Uh, go to www.ahimta.org and check out our website and check out all the things that we're doing. Um, we keep our uh, membership rates really low for for a reason, and so for fifty dollars, you can join and become a member, uh, and then uh, uh, and then you can uh, get involved to the level that. Um, you're able to. We realize that many people are, are very busy. So, uh, but as we start to expand on uh, this coordination group that FEMA has rolled out, we're going to need a lot more uh, participation from the members uh, in regards to that. But there's other uh, committees that pop up that uh, that we need um, in terms of uh, elections as we come uh, as we're coming up on our election period for uh, for our board of directors uh, recruitment. Um, you know. Um, uh, public affairs, you name it, we have some some things that can be done there, uh, but would encourage you to uh, get involved. But quite frankly, uh, we just love having members being involved because, uh, you know, we hope that uh, being a member really incites a little bit of a, we want to inspire excellence in incident management. And so having having members that get the education or uh, tidbits of information or the networking that, that comes along with being a member uh, really uh, goes a long way in terms of national uh, national response because what we often see is um, once these large incidents occur, all of a sudden people start trading phone calls and information just like I mentioned, um, you know, reaching out and doing an exchange program with uh, people locally. But, uh, you know, I've definitely been on the phone during these past um, 45 days or so with with members from New York and from Virginia and from Northwest Indiana and, and Oregon and you name it. And, and we're all just trading information and challenges that we're each having and solutions that we've all come up with so that we can implement them locally. And that's the true benefit of being an HIMTA member. That's awesome. Well, Randy, we're here close to the end here. Um, before I let you go, is there anything else you'd like to say to all the emergency managers in the world? Oh my gosh, that's a, that's an amazing question. Um, number one, I am just uh, proud uh, to be an emergency manager. I'm proud of the emergency management profession uh, rising to the challenge on this. I actually made a, a comment on my personal Facebook page uh, in March. I said, ever have one of those months where, how do you like me now <laughs> kind of thing? Because I, I certainly think that the uh, credibility of, of the emergency management profession has um instantaneously been uh, augmented uh, from this incident, and that's because of the hard work and diligent efforts of all the emergency managers across the across the country, across the world, uh, and would also uh, really like to give a great shout out to those that are using the team aspect of an incident management team. Of course, that's, that's my bread and butter with the All Hazards Incident Management Teams Association, um, and I know that these teams have been out there working since, since day one. Uh, really uh, bringing order from chaos and doing just uh, yeoman's work in terms of uh, uh, making making things a little bit better for for everybody out there dealing with this crisis. So I, my my hats off to them and and for their hard work. It's truly a selfless and thankless job, uh, but uh, but I certainly appreciate all the work that they've done, and it's it's certainly evident as you, as you can see communities that are are using their teams in, in various ways. And uh, it's, it's a credit to them and to their, um, their preparation. 
Well, Todd, you, you, you know, I prepared for the one question that you always ask and you didn't even give it to me today. I'll ask it. What book, books, or publications are you reading? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I'm always in the middle of four or five books, of course, but, uh, and, and they're all usually really good. Otherwise I stop reading them. But, uh, I, I, I thought, which one of my books am I going to mention today? And, um, and I thought one that is very applicable to, uh, what we're dealing with today, uh, that is a great book. And, and most of you know the author, Nassim Taleb, uh, who, who does Black Swan or wrote, who's the author of the Black Swan. And, uh, everybody's very, most emergency managers are very familiar with that book. But his other, he has several other books that are extremely good. And, uh, the one that was really on my mind today was Anti-Fragile. And, uh, and, and about building resiliency, about recovery. Um, and I think that's a, a great book that as we start to look toward uh, loosening up some of these isolation orders and, and so forth and moving into recovery, I think this, that's a great book to uh, skim over and, and reread and, and, and that sort of thing. Outstanding. And thank you for allowing me to ask that question again, because that's one of my favorite questions to ask. All right, man, I'll see you around. And it's always, like I said, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, my friend. All right. You too. Thanks, Don. Thank you for listening to this episode of EM Weekly. And please follow us on your favorite podcast player. And thank you to Sitch Radio, the home of the EM Weekly show. For more information, please go to www.sitchradio.com. See you next week.